house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. his father, I can give him stuff. Hey, I'm Officer DeLuca. We're here to search your house. What for? We're looking for the money that Luke Lanton, mayor, may not have given to you. 14 grand. The lion's share is going to our hero. This is your problem. This is our problem. And I'm bringing it to your attention because that's what I should do. I want to do two in one day. Yo, get up! I'm not going to let you bring us both down. There's a way out of this. You're not going to like it. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast giving you a giant pink diamond ring before you betray us. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my tattooed bank robber uh, motorcyclist daddy, Joe Reed. Hey, what's your problem? I feel like that phrase is said like 8,000 times in this film by several different characters. What's your problem, man? What's your fucking problem? What's your fucking problem? If it's Emery Cohen, it's like, what's your fucking problem? <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to argue about him. I That's do. I think we've argued about him in this movie before. I'm sure we have. But like, we're really going to get into it this time. because I, I feel I less have, strongly I than I I have galvanized my opinion after watching it again. So. <laughs> we who are of the homosexual persuasion and love to argue. Um, Us? What? No. No. What? Rude never. Yeah. Um uh yeah I okay so that opinion my Emery Cohen is uh sink, sink sinking the movie he's so bad opinion has leveled off. I just think he's generally bad. I don't think he kills the movie anymore. We'll get into it when we get into because that's the last part of the movie. We'll get into it. I still have very very opposite opinions of you for that, but we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Yeah, the like uh chapters of this movie when i was watching it uh again uh i was thinking it's like it's, i feel like we're gonna be backed into a corner of having a more linear episode than we normally do we just who- because we're gonna have to like bullet by bullet no no pun intended this film yeah we of the homosexual persuasion who like to uh wander through right. a conversation <laughs> instead of you know um uh, yeah follows. we don't we don't we don't follow your rules we like to get uh lost in the woods or right. perhaps lost beyond the pines beyond the pines yeah the i pines, am honey. I am very much dreading having to do this 60-second plot description. I sort of took a massive hatchet to my pre-prepared remarks, and it was just like, I'm going to have to shorten this a lot. And either I haven't done it enough, or I've done it way too much. We'll see. So we'll much see how plot. It goes. Yeah. So much plot. But, like, okay, so I think the both of us have historically... Because this is a fairly divisive movie. I think it was, especially at the time. There were... Okay, 
I wasn't prepared for how divisive because I go and I look at my letterbox when I log to this movie. Oh, I didn't do that. I should have done that. Oh, I mean, like people there hate are this, five hated this star movie. reviews. Yeah. There are one star reviews yep. in my follow in the people that I yep. follow, and like the people that hate it, fucking hate this movie. Yep, and I get their complaints there are like contrivances that i think hold the movie back because like what c and france is doing is so like uh ambitious and like tying these different yes. narratives together you know like it, it i don't want to say it demands it but like i understand why some of those happen and why it would bother any viewer there's there were a lot of sort of elements that would contribute to this at the time and still now. It is a incredibly male movie and I would say by design it is mm-hmm. it is a movie that really interrogates the sort of legacies of fathers to sons and whatever. And like those are the kinds of movies that have been made for decades on decades and if people and if you're you know sick of that I get it. This is also not a movie, much as I like it, I can fully admit that this is not a movie that serves its very few female characters well. Um, I agree. Also, Ryan Gosling fatigue was real, and it was happening, and it was really, you know, settling in right about now. This is where it sort of really started to make itself known. And people, like, people forget that Bradley Cooper at the time, it took a while for people to come around on Bradley Cooper. Not yeah. everybody. A lot of people really liked him right away in Silver Linings Playbook. Obviously, he got the Oscar nomination for that. A lot of people were on board, but there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of Silver Linings Playbook backlash that happened. There was, um, with like another David O. Russell movie coming down the pike there was like pre-fatigue almost for uh for bradley cooper and like it just it was he was a lot a lot more divisive of a figure at the time right and then i even think there was a lot of um you know three years after blue valentine a lot of people were like was that movie good or was that movie not good and i think while that movie is still pretty much really well regarded even in retrospect there were very vocal sort of detractors for that movie that sort of made themselves known and Mm -hmm. i think especially in our circles that we truck in those all those ingredients (laughs) added up to the fact that like i know i remember my timeline especially uh, in social media uh, at that time this was not a well liked movie. This was a really you would you would not have known that this was a seventy eight percent fresh Rotten Tomatoes movie at the time. Um, with like significant exceptions, seventy eight fresh, and then it's in the like low sixties of Metacritic. It's, yeah, it does. Like usually when we do those type of movies, it's like boring costume dramas, right? Um, but right. like that. That makes sense to me. Where it's like yeah. people overall think that the movie is good, fine. Um, but at the time didn't have much enthusiasm about it. Well, and it took me, I remember at the time, a little while to come around on it because I remember I was like two and a half hour movie about men and their issues. Like what fucking ever, man. And, um, it ended up just off of my top 10 list. I remember at, I was at uh, the Atlantic wire at the time and I did our top 10 list that year. Cause that was before we hired David Sims. And, 
Um, it was my number 10 movie of that year, the day that I published my top 10 list. And like to give you a little window into just how kind of runaway train our editorial uh, practice at the time was, and I say that with full responsibility of being the one responsible for that uh, <laughs> editorial practice at the time. Um, I saw The Act of Killing the night that my top 10 went up. And then the next day I went into work and I'm like, I'm changing my top 10. And I put The Act of Killing into my top 10 and I dropped uh, Place Beyond the Pines out of it into uh, honorable mention status. But it was like right on the cusp there. And it was on a few top 10 lists. I know our, our friend and past guest and, you know, undoubtedly future guest Richard Lawson put it on his top 10 that year. And it was a movie that a lot of people really championed for reasons that, you know... Even if I didn't largely agree with them, it would make sense because there's a lot of scope to this movie. There's a lot of ambition mm-hmm. to this movie. Um, Sean Bobbitt's cinematography is like we'll really get into fantastic. Sean I mean, fuck poor Sean Bobbitt and his concussion. Yeah, um, we'll definitely get into that. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly, as I said, ambitious movie, and that will get you respect even if some people you know find that that ambition isn't fully uh realized i think watching it again in this movie i have problems with the final third that are actually not uh, involved with the acting it's sort of in the in the writing of it and the structure of it but we'll yeah i i this rewatch i had problems with the final third that yeah. i didn't have initially and i liked the middle third better than i remember liking it i remember being like a fan of the beginning and end and sort of i don't think i was fully on the bradley cooper train at that point so i think i was one of those people being just like all right like <laughs> the middle third sells me on the movie in ways yeah. that i think the other uh portions don't but we will get into it joe we are here to talk about focus features again Yes, we are. Let's do our little Focus Features catch-up. This is our film number four of five in our Focus Features miniseries. We have previously uh, talked about The Muse uh, at October Films, and then uh, Possession, Possession, as, uh, as uh, I ethnically try and say it, and then Lust Caution last week, which was uh, super rad. So now we are into... The 2010s for Focus Features. Focus is very dominant at this point because when you look at the list of their releases, like, there's no way we're going to talk about or mention all of the releases at this point after, like, Lust Caution, but there's a billion movies. Or not not a billion, but a lot. No, there's a lot. And yet, no Best Picture. Like, the Brokeback Mountain wounds... Uh, linger i feel like and (laughs) i feel like that's going to i mean focus features is still a thing and just had a best picture nominee this past year with promising young woman so like certainly they're not out of the game at all but it does feel like more and more that like brokeback mountain was their real shot but yeah brokeback mountain i can't i can't think of another movie that they were closer to getting best picture or yeah. even something that's as close as Brokeback Mountain was, to be honest. Right. Right. Agreed. So, but yeah, so uh, we'll pick up where we left off with 
Lust Caution, which was a 2007 release. Um, they have a really interesting 2008 with like some highs and some lows. We've talked about um, at least one of the lows being. Uh... Well, wait, the other Berlin Girl was a co-production. So do we uh, do we hang the other Berlin Girl on uh, Focus or more on Columbia? I think Probably we counted it when we did that episode. Yeah. Um, but, like, In Bruges is a really great success story, I think, for an indie distributor. Mm-hmm. Or would it this depend on, you know, a dependent. Built over an entire year. Yes. Yeah. Um, Built over yeah, an entire year I forgot that while it opened in they February. still had a Best Picture player in Milk. Right, So it's exactly. not like it leveled up because, like, it had its movies falling through, you know, we're, we're right. seen in other situations. Yeah, Milk is the big uh, success story in 2008. Best Picture nomination, wins Sean Penn his second Oscar. Um, Dustin Lance Black wins the uh, original screenplay Oscar that year. And Colin Farrell, I would say, probably comes close to getting a nomination for In Bruges that year. He had won the Golden Globe. He's probably in that, like, 6-7-8 range mm-hmm. in the voting for Best Actor that year. Would have been a very worthy nominee. I think he's wonderful in that movie. Um, also, that year was Burn After Reading. We did an episode on that, uh, the Coen Brothers movie that didn't end up getting nominated for anything. But yeah, I think Milk is a that's you know that's an A plus A plus work for Focus Features in terms of that Oscar story for that movie. Really good job there. Um, Two thousand nine is I think even more interesting, even though. They only really have one serious awards contender, no pun intended. <laughs> um, they get the nomination for A Serious Man. A Serious Man only gets, what, like two nominations? Two, right? screenplay and picture. Right. And that's the first year that Best Picture expands to 10. I think we can probably safely say, given that it only got two nominations, that it wouldn't have gotten a Best Picture nomination had it uh, been only five. But, like, no, good that for nomination the makes me happy, though. Best yeah. Coen Brothers movie. I don't agree with that, but I I respect it. I respect the hustle for a serious man, <laughs> and good for that. Um, Nine also has some other things that, like tangentially, like were around Oscar, like Coraline, Away We Go. Coraline was an animated feature nominee, right? I'm positive it was. I'm sure I can. Look did it, it lose? Really what did it lose to? Like Happy Feet. Up would have been 09. Because ah, Up was a, uh, was a Best Picture nominee. Um, yes, it was nominated for an animated feature that year. It did lose to Up. Yes. So, I Lee have... came out with another movie this year in Taking, Taking Woodstock. Woodstock. Yeah. Um, a very... Um, maybe one of the most interesting Ang Lee movies to talk about just because of the fact that it, it was not... Uh, all that successful. I think that and Ride with the Devil are like the interesting Ang Lee movies to talk about just because it's just like, oh, like, and they weren't disasters is the other thing. They were just sort of just like, huh, like that, <laughs> that took a swing and, and didn't go for it. I remember enjoying taking Woodstock well enough. I liked certain elements of it a lot. I remember some people kind of really hated it. I think some people really hated Imelda Staunton's performance. Uh, in that movie, I know. I think I saw at least one person call it anti-Semitic, which I cannot speak to. Um, but I enjoyed 
that movie. Jonathan Groff is super hot. I remember that movie not at all feeling like an angly movie. Like, just feeling, you know, very, like, broad and uninteresting. I don't know if I would say uninteresting, but broad I'll give you, for sure. Um, I was going to say Jonathan Groff enters a scene in that film on a horse with uh, a vest with no shirt on. So if that's what you're looking for, (laughs) have at it. Um, Away We Go is also that year, which is a film that I love with my whole heart and i know that's another movie that i think some uh, people, people like don't and like some that people movie. really don't we like, like that, that movie. movie i really like that movie um episodic though it is i also i never quite appreciated at the time because uh maya rudolph was is the female lead in that movie it's her and krasinski and she hadn't really been she hadn't been the lead in a movie ever. She was a, you mm-hmm. know, obviously Saturday Night Live performer and she had been in some sort of some small movie roles. The degree to which that role dovetails with her own life uh, and, you know, losing her mother so young. And I don't think I appreciated at the time what, you know, that mm-hmm. element of her performance. That hers is a performance that. I appreciate more and more every time I see that movie. I think at first I probably wasn't super impressed. I thought it was a little uh, reserved and I wasn't quite getting why. It's a little precious with uh, what it's doing and like the structure of it seems like the type of thing that like, you know, a lot of people eye roll at like this kind of quirky comedic yeah. drama, blah, 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 blah. They're going on a road trip, blah, 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 blah. But like, I do actually think it's a little bit more uh, nuanced and tender of a movie than people I at least it re- regarded it at the time. I think it really builds. I think it's really good. Um, Focus gets another Best Picture nomination in 2010. Uh, with The Kids Are Alright. Again, probably not a movie that would have gotten a nomination if it wasn't a top ten, but like that's why I love the top ten, because mm-hmm. The Kids Are Alright deserve about that, that though, attention. because like that was enough. That movie was around enough. It got other major nominations, too. Like, Lisa Cholodenko didn't get the director nomination for it. But, I just like, feel like... That movie stuck around for a long time. Yeah, I guess so. I just feel like 2010, the major narratives were on other movies. And I think I could easily see a world where the kids are all right gets boiled down to, you know, the Benning and Ruffalo nominations. And, you know, that's all a screenplay. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like that kind of a movie. Um, Also, 2010 is Sofia Coppola somewhere, which we've done an episode on. This (laughs) this period of time really reminds me that, like, we've, we've... done a lot of focus features like it's funny that we're doing a mini series on it and it's just like we've done so much but honestly but they fit so well into our rubric that like it makes all the sense Mm -hmm. in the world that we really have 2011 is also a really interesting year they were probably very close to getting tinker taylor soldier spy wasn't a best picture nominee was it no it wasn't but you get the feeling that it it probably came close, close though yeah yeah and uh, obviously, uh, there's the Christopher Plummer steamroll that happens this year. For beginners, they yeah. weirdly put Pariah at the very end of the year, and if they hadn't done that, that movie could have maybe gotten some traction. Yep. Um, fucking love that movie. 2012, however, also feels like they're kind of close on the outside. It, what's interesting is, like, 
ultimately, their big 2012 player was Moonrise Kingdom because their other movies nobody else liked. And this also gets us into The Place Beyond the Pines because their big fall movies are Anna Karenina, which we both love. And yeah. Some and got four really nominations. Yeah, but like four nominations and a win is like, that's nothing to sneeze at. Right, exactly. But like, it wasn't going to be a best picture player. Right. People didn't like it enough. And then right. Hyde Park on Hudson, which is so Disaster. bad. Disaster. Um, one of our early episodes. Yeah. Um, but both of those movies played the TIFF that Place Beyond the Pines premiered at. Right. But they still held Place Beyond the Pines for the fall, which, like, I understand that because... For the spring, for the following spring. Uh, yes, the following spring, sorry. Um, I, I get that because it's like they bought that movie at a fall festival. It takes a lot to kind of launch a movie. They bought it at TIFF, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and I think right away, I was reading one of the write-ups about when uh, Focus had bought place beyond the pines and right away they were like uh coming in 2013 so like there was even no even consideration right. that it, that they would try and open it um at the end of 2012 which because that's the same tiff that silver linings playbook kind of had that breakthrough mm-hmm. that calculus makes sense because it's just like we don't want to run the other bradley cooper movie up against this one we want to maybe take our time with it i agree with all of that i don't know if i necessarily agree with opening it in march of 2013 but right. Um, the very end of March, like Easter weekend, uh, in limited right. release, take your family to see a movie about male, uh, you know, yeah. uh, whatever. Um, Focus also had Promised Land in the pipeline for this year, too. But, yeah. like, it had their Christmas slot. That movie we talked about in our episode, if I rem- am remembering correctly... Uh, had a somewhat fast turnaround. Um, Promised Land, yes. In that, like, they could have... It's hard to, you know, just... It, it's happened before, where it's like, still Alice ends up becoming an Oscar right. winner immediately after a fall festival, um, kind of out of nowhere, too. Yeah. But, like, The I thing that puzzles me about Place Beyond the Pines being a March release in 2013 is... It's not like they had something huge in the in the tank waiting for the end of 2013. Their Oscar movie that year in 2013 ends up being Dallas Buyers Club, which does get a Best Picture nomination, but that feels like that was a late-breaking strategy. I think for the longest time, they were pushing that as a Matthew McConaughey nomination, and I think the the snowball effect of it got it into the best picture conversation but that felt like Mm -hmm. that was a late development whereas like it doesn't feel like that movie was big enough a year ahead of time to sort of force place beyond the pines into the spring right um yeah but the other thing is like if you hold a movie for that long from like a toronto premiere to the next fall yeah it gives like a tainted thing about the movie right like sure yeah i get that um, however, like, this kind of brings me to one of my points. I wasn't going to bring up this early. I think TIFF was the wrong festival for this movie. Yeah, I could see that. What, 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 what do you think would have been better? Well, okay, so it played TIFF shortly after it finished post-production because, like, it took them, like, nine months in the, like, to edit the movie. Yeah to get it to be what San France wanted it to be. Um, 
I I just feel like if it was launched at like a can or a Sundance instead, people would have um Yeah. I don't know. I mean, at least in terms of an awards narrative, I think the movie probably yeah. would have fared better. So um, Blue and Valentine. Like it didn't, I mean, this movie made twenty million dollars, being what it is, and I think that's a good amount of money for. I her, agree you know, with that. Yeah, spring uh, counter programming. Yeah. Uh, so it's like this. Uh, even though, like, we're talking about it in an awards context, this movie uh, isn't, you know, yeah. hurting in any way. So I wonder if there was a worry that it wouldn't get into Cannes because Cannes is sort of famously, um, once you're in the club, you're in the club, but until you are, it's sort of your role in the dice as to whether you can get into the competition there. And I don't know if premiering this one out of competition would have been enough for, um, for the film. But yeah, can certainly it's just a festival in... it would have made more sense at yes, too. I agree. It feels like the a European festival feels like a more a more fitting premiere for this movie with the kind of the style of it, the scope of it, the kind of not to like I know people people use this term a little too uh, readily, but like there is a seventies sort of uh, feel to it a little bit. Or um, I remember watching it this time especially. I had to check like three separate times to make sure that this wasn't based on a novel because it really feels based on mm-hmm. a novel. It just has the that way the story structure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and C in France basically works with novels now, um, right. which is so interesting because in doing my research for this episode and listening to some of his reviews, he kind of like talks shit about. Um, uh, reading interviews, he it, there was one in particular where he was like, you know, you watch those movies based on books and they're not very good and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I think, surprising the pivot that you took, sir. I think early tw- early 2010s Derek C. in France, I remember I saw Blue Valentine at, uh, at BAM, at Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, it might have been one of those um, simultaneous with Sundance things. Or it couldn't have been, because if it was simultaneous with Sundance, he would have been at Sundance. But, like, he gave a talk after. So it was like... But I think it was still, like, um, pretty early on in that year. But I remember he gave a little, you know, short little talk back after the film. And I remember walking away from that being, like, he seems a little full of himself. And it took me a while to sort of, like, (laughs) come back around on Derek C. of France, because it was just like, he seems like he's maybe a, you know, jackass. But, um, so maybe now he looks back at sort of that era of him, and is just like, calm down, buddy. I do also kind of, um, like, I guess to speak to his later works or what he's done more recently, like, uh, Light Between Oceans, we won't say too much about, I think. we will do that, yeah. We will absolutely do an episode on that movie. Um, and, like, that movie kind of got, like, kicked around. I think it, like, sat on a shelf for over a year. Yes. With, like, no plan of when they were going to release it. And, like, I do think that's a, a better movie than uh, it's given credit for. But, like, watching Place Beyond the Pines, it really felt... Less of a piece than with Blue Valentine and more of a piece with I Know This Much Is True, Mm -hmm. which was the HBO limited series with Mark Ruffalo last year that I loved. But because it is very much a bummer sandwich, I think (laughs) no one else watched. Um, I mean, Mark Ruffalo has been winning awards for it as he rightly should but like it's really great work by Derek C in France and it feels very 
close to what this movie is. It felt to me, I kept sort of like hovering over, should I watch this? Because the cast is fantastic. I really do like Derek C. in France. And your recommendation sort of carried a lot of weight with me. And yet, uh, early spring into early summer of 2020, um, it felt like a big ask for me. Uh, yeah. um, emotionally. <laughs> and yeah. I was just it, like, it, you know, hit at exactly the wrong time to get people to watch it. <laughs> I might go back and watch, you know, uh, uh, darts videos on YouTube instead of watching. I know this much is true. And I honestly, that was probably, uh, better for my, uh, mental health at the moment. So, you know, it does also end, um, if not with uplift, like it does feel like, uh, you know, you're not left on this horrible, like taxing note for the show. I will. I had also read the previous novel by that author, by Wally lamb. Uh, Uh she's come undone. And I remember, and I read that one, like in my early twenties. And, but I remember even then I was just like, this is, bummer town like it was and not not like i like bummer town is almost like too innocuous i was just like you are putting this girl through the ringer of like it's one of those novels where like every possible bad thing that could happen to somebody happens to somebody and i was like this is not the kind of novel i want to be reading um and i say that as somebody who read all of a little life on vacation which was certainly a decision that i made to uh put myself through that kind of emotional <laughs> ringer by the by the uh the ocean but you know i i did it and and then you finished the book and you walked right into the <laughs> sea right into the sea yeah never looked back exactly you are speaking uh-huh. to the uh the Trish-esque uh, water spirit uh, that, that once was me for this podcast. I love that your Trish origin story is reading a <laughs> it's little reading life. a little life on vacation. <laughs> Won't make that mistake twice. I'll say that much. You know, I can't believe that we are a podcast hosted by two gay men, and it's taken us almost 150 <laughs> episodes to mention a little life. Um, uh, but here we well, are. Well, here we are. Yeah. Well, we'll mention it when it eventually gets made into a movie produced by Focus Features and gets zero Oscar nominations. That's when we'll talk about <laughs> and it. And we'll talk about it. Um, uh, okay, so speaking of I Know This Much Is True, which I think listeners should definitely, you know, give it the time. It's not something you're going to want to binge, but you should watch the show. Mark Ruffalo's incredible. Um, yeah. Rosie O'Donnell's fucking incredible in it, actually. This is um, what I've heard, yeah. It's the TV show that everybody should have been talking about for Catherine Hahn. She's even amazing, even though she doesn't have a ton to do. Anyway. Listen, Catherine Hahn was justly praised for uh, WandaVision. I will not I hear this slander. I haven't watched it, so I, I don't she actually know. She was great. Um, she was great. Any praise that she gets at all is justly earned. We know that. Yeah. We Listen, we were on the ground level. We were a Catherine Hahn stan podcast before it was cool. I was in like on Catherine Hahn at Revolutionary Road, which I know wasn't like the very Hell beginning yeah. of Catherine Hahn, but like it was pretty close to the beginning. So like, kiss my butt. What I, I want don't know who I'm yelling at at this point, but okay. about uh, like C in France, and I know this much is true. Is like he goes. I mean that that book's like fucking huge. It's like 700 pages or something. Yes, and it is. he goes and does a limited series with it. It's like, I think, eight episodes. And we've talked a lot before about movies of like this era and before that it, the unfortunate thing about the business is you know, they, they some would of be these TV movies would be today. Yeah. limited series today. Right. And I'm I'm glad it, this wasn't. I, thank you. That's exactly what I was going to say. I 
I think because this movie has the type of scope it has, it has the kind of ambition that it has. I think it's yes. better for being yes. a movie. Um, yes. Even a long movie, even one that like sometimes bites off more than it can uh, successfully chew. I think that's, I think that's an asset to the movie. I think it was, mm-hmm. it's part of what makes me really like it. It so, makes the yeah. movie stand out. It makes yes. it, um, in a way that, like, I don't actually think this would be interesting if it was a limited series, even if it was three episodes that are... Oh, it would become such a fucking slog. Like, it would be it would be a lot worse, I think, as a limited series. And I think, like, the connective threads between the three narratives would oh, get lost. They would run concurrently. The way TV is done today, everything has to be experienced on multiple timelines, seemingly. So, like, you would have all three timelines happening at the same time, and it would be so irritating. Well, in one interview, Derek C. in France said that when they were trying to get financing for the movie, one studio wanted them to do that. They no. wanted Ugh. them to have, like, because the concern was... Uh, spoiler alert, listeners. We'll get into the 60-second plot description soon. Yeah, The we concern <laughs> was you're killing a major character right. Right. a third of the way into the movie. And right. they wanted all three storylines to have con- Not only a major character, but like... A, the star, sorry, the marquee star. Right. Yeah, like the big star. The guy who we're hanging our marketing on. Yeah. Uh, which, like, A, there are a million movies like that. Right. And... A lot of them are bad, but B, like, I don't understand how you maintain any type of tension when it's, like, one of the other narratives, or two of them, actually, is predicated on knowing that one of these characters we're watching is going to die. I think that kills, would kill all the tension. Like, yes, yeah, the, the movie being structured as it is, is part of why it's good. I agree. I absolutely agree. We should get into the 60-second plot description so we, we can should. start talking about this movie. And yeah. uh, uh, also, I'm just very eager for the torture of you trying to condense what oh happens in this fucking movie. God, we'll see, we'll see where that minute ends seconds. up. Yeah. Guys, we are here talking about The Place Beyond the Pines, uh, written and directed by Derek C. in France, also co-written by Ben Coscio and Darius Martyr. Um, I will have some things to say. Uh, starring a really large cast and a lot of them in very small roles, but Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, Dane DeHaan, Emery Cohen, Eva Mendes, Rose Byrne, Ray Liotta, uh, Ben Mendelsohn, Mahershala Ali, Olga Meredith, Harris Yulin, and Bruce Greenwood. The movie premiered at TIFF in 2012 and then didn't open until uh, Easter weekend of late March uh, 2013. He he is risen. And by he, we mean... Uh, Dane DeHaan. Gosling, I guess. Yes, Dane DeHaan. <laughs> Dane yeah. DeHaan has come back to us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the movie, uh, the Dane DeHaan emerges from the cave. <laughs> uh, kind of does. Rolls that boulder back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Joe, are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of The Place Beyond the Pines? I mean, sure. Again, as I said, this is going to end up being either too hacked down or still not hacked down enough, and we'll see where we go. (laughs) All right. If you are ready, your 60-second plot description starts now. 
All right, first third. Ryan Gosling is a traveling motorcycle stunt driver who fathered a kid with Eva Mendez, but she's with Mahershala Ali now, but Gosling wants to be a big shot anyway and provide for his kid, so he gets into robbing banks with Ben Mendelsohn, which goes well for a while until it doesn't, and he ends up getting chased in, uh, into a house by Officer Bradley Cooper, and Cooper shoots first and Gosling dies. Second third. Gosling ended up shooting Cooper too, though, but he survived, and he uh, is hailed by as a hero cop by the department, and they happily cover up who shot first, and then Ray Liotta and his pig friends come over, and they're like, come with us to help us shake down Eva Mendez and Mahershala and Cooper feels gross seconds. about it and eventually he blows the whistle on their whole corrupt cop ring and blackmails his way into a job in the DA's office final third 15 years later Cooper's divorced from Rose Byrne and running for state district attorney and his teenage son from Smash is a real nightmare who befriends Dane DeHaan who is the teenage son of Ryan Gosling and Eva Mendez and Smash kid bullies DeHaan into scoring some Oxycontin for him and Dane eventually finds out Smash's dad is the guy who kills his father and he flips out and he gets a gun and he drags Cooper into the woods at gunpoint but he doesn't kill him he just steals enough money to go buy a motorcycle and become a drifting ball of problematic masculinity just like his dad the end and that is Exactly at time. I have never been more fucking proud of you. I'm so impressed with myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's the place beyond the pines. Like, it's a good, it's over an hour just the Gosling portion of the movie, which is probably the least plotty and the more like. It's very artistic. Vibes, but it's the most like. Yeah. It's the Sean Bobbidiest part of the movie, for sure. Jesus it's the Christ. one. I mean, like, can we just maybe get into Sean Bobbitt now? Sure, because that's where the movie begins. It's this, like, really, like, impressive tracking shot through this carnival. Schenectady, <laughs> uh, New York is where it uh, takes place in, which you would uh, know if you've ever taken a train uh, to or from Albany. It's the first stop after uh, Albany, upstate. Um, it's tracks sort of behind gosling you don't know where he's going he eventually makes it to this motor motorcycle uh exhibition which he is part of it's called like and, the ball of death or something. right exactly yes um and it's this like big circular motorcycle cage which you've ever seen you know they go up and around and it's very uh impressive and scary and bobbit takes the camera tracks it through that whole extravaganza in real life he insisted upon being inside the cage while it filmed with like protective gear and whatever but a motorcycle still um hit him and gave him a concussion on top of him they did that shot from one of the interviews i read with cn grant they did that shot twice where sean bobbitt goes into the actual thing fucked it up the first time and then the second time motorcycle falls on his fucking head <laughs> i mean somehow miraculously is only concussed like nothing else is wrong with him and after that cn france was like yeah you're not going in the cage again right and uh, i i mean like not to be like oh he put himself in danger that makes him a legend but like you see the shot as it is and the it's shot's like, great it's still not exactly what he wanted and it's still kind of gobsmacking and yeah. then a lot of the f- I mean, first of all, the movie's just for like the whole like gritty blah blah blah. blah. Right. It's, you know, right. it's actually kind of fucking gorgeous. It's and... elegant. Like there's an elegance mm-hmm. to it within the gritty sort of, you know, milieu of all of it. Also the I fact just... that sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say the fact that uh twenty thirteen when this movie's released is also the year of twelve years a slave is like mm-hmm. like Sean Bobbitt was and still is, by the way, and finally is uh, getting Oscar nominations, thank God. But finally like, got nominated. He should have won this year. Um, Just my opinion. 
no, he's fantastic. He should have an Oscar. He's one of those people who's just like, he should have an Oscar. Um, but, like, this was the the big sort of, like, Sean Bobbitt was the hotness when it came to uh, cinematography mm-hmm. at this stage. Yes. I mean, well, there's also, like, all these crazy shots of, like, the motorcycle footage that they, like, I don't know how they filmed it. Yeah. Um, not just that opening shot, which, like, we talk about that shot, but, like, the getaway scene The getaway is... scenes are fantastic, both of them. Both of the big motorcycle chase scenes are astounding. And the way they shot it, I'm like, someone died to make this movie. Um, it's just... And, like, not that danger makes for good art. It's just it... Wait, really who died? Kinda... No, I'm... I'm... I'm joking. Oh, okay. I was like, what did I miss when no I was died. researching? No this one film. actually died to make oh, this God. movie, but like when okay. you're watching it, like, yes. you feel like you feel like someone could die. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And Gosling wanted to do some of his own stunts in the mm-hmm. film. And like, this was, again, this was part of the whole Ryan Gosling mystique of the early 2010s. Like, of course, he wanted to do his own stunts. Um, well, and like, just the way that it's shot really adds to the tension, the real sense of, like I mentioned, danger and like yeah. the kind of rush of the movie. But there's also, like, I really want seeing France and Sean Bobbitt to work together again. Oh, my because God. Because so much yeah. of this movie is like uh about like myth and like myth of like fathers and sons and building this and i think what sean bobbitt achieves in this movie really kind of enhances that in a way that is yeah very moving yeah um the fathers and sonsness of the movie is something that i had to kind of overcome in this movie again we've seen so many movies where that is the theme and a movie that marginalizes its female characters to the extent that this one does is just starting at a deficit with me. And that's just like, that's sort of how I'm, you know, oriented and that's fine. Um, Especially when one of those women is Rose Byrne, who well, I that's what I was going to say, is that, like, this is the moment we all kind of, especially us of the, uh, I'm just going to keep calling us, us of the homosexual persuasion. Um, uh, started to really kind of lock into loving her. Well, um, Bridesmaids was a couple years before this, and I think that's when, mm-hmm. I think that's when we first all realized. Wait a second, because going into Bridesmaids, she was the one. She was the outlier. She wasn't part of the uh, SNL, and even like Ellie Kemper was like an NBC comedy. Wendy McClendon Covey was coming from Reno Nine One One, and they all had like Melissa McCarthy had you know been on sitcoms and stuff like that. So like Rose Byrne was like, oh, and also there's a movie star to play the villain essentially of this movie. And then you watch Bridesmaids and she's so funny and game for all of it and winning and like perfect for that role. And like for as much as I love Melissa McCarthy in that movie, and I think she's a total scream and like, I love that Oscar nomination. Rose Byrne is my best in show for that movie. Like she's so fucking funny and i think after that performance a lot of the kinds of roles that she had been getting before bridesmaids really started to stand out as like just not enough like we really need movies to be giving us more and better for roseburn and like even with that set she plays bradley cooper's wife in this movie she um, she probably shot for maybe two or three days <laughs> she gets like t- basically 
three scenes. She's in the hospital with him. She uh, is at dinner with him with the with the dirty cops. And then in the third section, she's there at uh, at his father's funeral and sort of tells him he's got to take Emery Cohen. But in that middle scene, that dinner scene where um, he sort of Cooper like invites these uh, cops, Ray Liotta and the other ones in. He and he's having a hard time sort of relating to her after the shooting. We sort of see seeds of their eventual divorce. And she doesn't want these cops to come over for dinner, clearly, to be like to come in for dinner. But like, there they are. And she at one point says something. They want him to come with them on this, what turns out to be the shakedown of Eva Mendez. But they're like, hey, well, we want to come and, like, you know, in- introduce him to some people and, you know, have them, you know, celebrate his hero-ness or whatever. And she sort of says, like, well, you know, he's he's the big hero. And Ray Liotta is like, do I, te- did I, do I detect some, you know, sarcasm there? And she plays it off. But she it's such a good scene for her. And I'm like, mm-hmm. she's so good give it getting a crumb just a crumb of something to work with and i'm just like it really it impressed me all the more with her but she's not served well in this movie even mendez is not no. served well in this movie and i i get that that's not what the movie is about and normally like 9 times out of 10 that would like that movie would be dead to me <laughs> because of that and i think it takes i agree it takes this movie being as good as it is for me to sort of look past that and be like, okay, fine. You want to make a movie about fathers and sons and legacies. And like, this is a movie that interrogates the sort of masculine drive Mm -hmm. to whatever, provide for a kid and be, you know, the fucking macho guy who has to show up the new boyfriend or, whatever this movie also interrogates cop culture a lot more than i remembered it doing i remember being like sort of cringy i was like oh are we gonna have to like sympathize with bradley cooper as like the poor cop in this and just like this is not what that movie is asking you to do like at all and it certainly isn't like it could veer in that direction too but like at the end of like that portion of the story basically it shows him to be just as corrupt as the rest of them and um that it shows the system to be like endemically corrupt in a way well, that like i, I didn't remember also... us talking about in 2013 so like that's cool mm-hmm. absolutely well and i also think that as far as like what the movie interrogates like it shows like that whole like uh toxic thing very rooted um in the center of our culture um as inherently male too and uh, in like very bad way like i don't think it, it feels like kind of a diversion from the grander story because it's like here here's a chapter on why cops are bad um you know, whereas, like, the rest of it is just, like, this kind of broader study of, like, fathers and sons. Um, except I would time, say it's... that, like, sorry to interrupt you for a second, but I just, just okay. except to say that, like, I think what that middle part does with the corrupt cops thing is, like, Cooper's character was planning on, like, he wanted to be a cop because that's how he was going to contribute to society 
and be a good man and be a good father and be a good husband and all of that. Mm-hmm. And this watching idea that of a perfect man or right. like a righteous man. And watching that sort of like get disillusioned and how that sort of crumbles him as a man and like leads to things like him becoming this sort of like hollowed out politician figure in the final third and not a good father to his kid and sort of like not willing to try even he doesn't he doesn't want the responsibility of taking on this kid for the summer or whatever and um i think that middle portion because like what's a more like typically masculine archetype in a film but also in like american cultural life it's a cop right so like mm-hmm. watching well, you that probably just said what i was gonna say way more eloquent, sorry, eloquently sorry than i would have um but no like to what you're saying it's the way the reason it doesn't feel like oh this movie's going and doing uh something else in this portion is that it does right. feel very intrinsic to the type of masculinity that see in france is talking about with this yeah. movie, or like hate to yeah. say like talking about that sounds trite but like no it's it true. does yeah. feel very much like the way that that story unfolds is it uh like intrinsic to yeah the type of masculinity he's trying to unpack so before we get too far into that before we move past the gosling portion of the movie too much i want to talk about the sort of the ryan gosling thing of 2012 2013 because he really he was everywhere for Mm -hmm. a couple of years there and it started because he got the oscar nomination i mean whatever mickey mouse club the younger star the notebook uh murder by numbers all that stuff right gets the oscar nomination in 2006 for half nelson and then it's like oh not only is he this like you know up and coming young actor but like he's got the goods like he's sort of, you know, been anointed with this Oscar nomination as, like, there are big things ahead for this guy. Also, almost gets a nomination for Lars and the Real Girl. I feel like he came very close Mm -hmm. uh, for 2007. And then nothing for a couple of years. And then 2010, he comes back, Blue Valentine. It feels like he and Michelle Williams are both sort of campaigned kind of equally. It's sort of, it's definitely like a a two-hander of a movie and it's a campaign that way and williams gets the nomination and gosling doesn't and i'm always somebody who proceeds with caution when trying to glean stuff from that because you can't you can't say that you know oscars liked her better than him because it's like you're voting in two separate things you're dealing with different competition whatever and maybe you know the best actor field that year was more competitive than, mm-hmm. you know, best actress was and whatever. But like, for whatever the reason she gets the nomination, he doesn't, he probably comes in sixth or seventh that year for best actor for blue Valentine. But regardless, that movie kind of sets the new template for Gosling where he's playing this moody, um again like dealing with a lot of like masculinity stuff and uh troubled and a little bit of a hair trigger and self-destructive you know and that sets the template for a lot of stuff going forward not necessarily crazy stupid love which we did an episode on and 
Ides of March, which is, I think, is a failed attempt to make him a Clooney heir apparent, which, like, that never mm-hmm. fit anyway. But, like, Drive certainly plays into that. Drive is, like, he doesn't even get a name in that movie. He's very much, like, the masculine id in that movie. Um, <laughs> has to, you know, kick the shit out of Oscar Isaac in order to, uh, you know, win win Carrie Mulligan. And there's just a lot of... Um, and again, a very stylish movie, but like stylish around these sort of like uh, interrogations of toxic masculinity going on in there. And then Place Beyond the Pines, like he's a stunt driver in Drive. He's a stunt motorcycle guy in Place Beyond the Pines. Like it's so similar and it happens, you know, right next. And he's also in like an iconic jacket again. Right. And then that same year that Place Beyond the Pines comes out, he's in another Nicholas Winding Refn movie. Uh, only God forgives. That is like so somehow even moodier, somehow even more like you know violent, he says and toxic, even less. And, <laughs> right? Exactly. So like by this point, the Ryan Gosling thing has almost come to the point of parody, where it's like he's adopted this kind of tough guy voice that you know is feels like it could be a bit of a put on and. He's playing these, like, as you said, ever more taciturn characters who strike these sort of stylishly violent and, uh, you know, macho postures. And having those three movies come out within two years of each other is a lot. It's a lot for people to take in. Well, and I, I think mean, I, he understandably goes away so. after that, too. Like, uh, only God right. for, after Only God Forgives... Uh, the next movie he makes is The Big Short, which is like a few years of a gap. But this whole period we're talking about, I think it's so interesting because there's like a gap before yeah. and after this whole kind of ascension. Um, right. Which, like he was gearing ga- up for it and then he had to cool down. It's like he was doing a very intense workout. <laughs> well, I think the I think the the gap at the beginning of it, you know, at, which is after his Oscar nomination and after Lars and the Real Girl. I think the reason for that is because of the Lovely Bones. Oh, right. Because he, did... he was cast as the dad, cast way too young for that role. And gained but he puts weight on for a ton it. of weight. Yeah. 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 Um, what a disaster that movie is. I forgot the many tentacles of the disaster that is the Lovely Bones. I know. I don't remember if he filmed <clears throat> scenes or not, but like he yeah. was on set for that movie. Right. Um, and then they call Mark Wahlberg in, and he, Mark Wahlberg is terrible. He Geisling very what very much was the tomb in the middle of that house. You have a tomb in the middle of your house. Uh, in, uh, in the lovely <laughs> He was the uh, he was the uh, you the have actor a tomb in the away. middle of your house. Uh, I love Susan Sarandon in that so much. I don't I don't love Susan Sarandon in that. Well, well, she's probably my favorite performance in it because there's not a lot of competition there. But that line I will stick with me forever. Yeah, I should rewatch that bad movie. Um, a shame we can't do it on this podcast because yeah. of Stanley Tucci's horrible nomination. But you're right, though. A few years later, he does emerge. The Big Short. He's sort of back into that kind of. Crazy, stupid, love, cocky. He's still doing the voice, but it's like um, he's barely he's, in that movie. He is, but like, but he's very flashy when he is in that movie. Like he's sort of like he's doing that crazy, stupid love thing. He's taking over scenes and he's telling people what's what. And Steve Steve Carell is in the general vicinity, and you know, there's a lot of that. Um, but then he he really does start branching out into where like 
the nice guys, which I really love, and he's very funny in that movie. And it's just like, oh, right, like he can use this persona to get laughs. Like, that's very cool. And La La Land, another incredibly divisive movie. Um, but it's a different thing. He's very, he's charming and he's sort of, you know, he can be very sweet in that movie. And Blade Runner 2049, another divisive movie that I love. This is kind of a this is kind of a theme with me and Ryan Gosling. Um <laughs> he's doing the sort of like action hero thing, but very kind of very cerebral. Um and f- I mean First Man is sort of back to, oh, can we get a character who doesn't smile or talk very much? That would be <laughs> ideal. <laughs> we need someone who is not going to smile on screen. Yeah. Is Gosling available? And then coming up next, he's doing a thriller with the Russo brothers. Where Netflix, it's... yeah, this movie sounds like I will hate it. Yeah, he he's playing a CIA uh, operative, and it's uh, Chris Evans and Anna de Armas, and um, Billy Bob Thornton is in it. Alfred Woodard is in it, but yeah, it's a it's sort of a CIA thriller thing that I what's what was the movie with all of the hot actors and they were like soldiers of fortune. Um, Ben Affleck was in the cast. Charlie Uh, Hunnam was in it. Charlie Hunnam and Oscar uh, Isaac was in it. Uh, Yeah. What the fuck was that called? It's the, um, it's the same guy I thought as, um, most violent year. It's, uh, God, what was it, was it called? I, I want to say Tropic Thunder, but it is not. No, I, I almost want to say but like Stealth like Force, like something <laughs> like that. It's just like it has a very like 80s action title. Triple Frontier. Triple Frontier. Triple Frontier. Not which, a double like, frontier. It's a triple frontier. Yeah. Triple Frontier, which went through like several like versions. It was at one point going to be a Catherine Bigelow movie with Tom Hanks and like right. then became this whole other very different movie. That was one of the first times where Netflix trotted out the bullshit 40 million or whatever number that they say for every single movie uh, of people yeah, watch that movie. Right. And I was like, no, they did not. You just copied the I press release from the last movie. This movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, hopefully The Gray Man, which is this uh, CIA movie, uh, is better than that. And again, I tend to like the, the Ryan Gosling movies that are a little divisive, so maybe I will like it. But yeah, anyway, Place Beyond the Pines is coming smack in the middle of this this Ryan Gosling fatigue that had really sort of started to set in. And it's kind of too bad because I don't think we're, I think we are meant to be as frustrated with this character as we end up being and his sort of insistence on playing this, this role in uh you know his family's life where he's going to provide for this kid no matter whether Eva Mendez you know wants him in her life or whether he's going to be good for the kid or you know you know Mahershala Ali is there and he doesn't give a shit and he's just going to bulldoze his way into the kid's life and he's going to rob banks and he's going to do whatever because he's got to be a provider for his whatever and i think the movie looks upon that with a lot of criticism and a lot of skepticism. Mm-hmm. And I Yeah, I definitely that. think we're perhaps not supposed to like him because it's very clear that like, If we were supposed to like him If we were supposed to like him, he wouldn't have put a gun in Ben Mendelssohn's mouth because Ben Mendelssohn is so likable <laughs> in this movie. He's so great. Ben Mendelssohn is so good in this movie. I love um, him so much. Well, but also like I think 
one of the key themes is like in terms of fatherhood. It it's very clear that like C and France is saying, you know, maybe the best thing that this character could do for his kid is truly fade away. Like not yeah. ingratiate himself, not be involved whatsoever. And at every turn right. he doesn't do that because of whatever this ingrained masculinity is. And Whereas, that ends like, up he creates basically the whole fucked up situation of the entire movie simply because he, you know, yeah, wants to be involved. And that theme ends up getting revisited in the final third in a way that like it doesn't quite it feels a little forced to me. But in that final third, again, Dane DeHaan, who plays his grown, his sort of teen, his son now grown up to be a teenager, has a really great father figure in Mahershala Ali, and we see that, and it's actually mm-hmm. contrasted with what a poor father figure Bradley Cooper ends up being for Emery Cohen, and he also weirdly, like Ben Mendelsohn's a better father figure than Ryan Gosling at this because like when he meets Ben Mendelsohn. Mendelssohn, like, there's that moment where, you know, he's there to sort of tell Dane DeHaan about his father, who has never really known about his father. But even still, he's like, don't read that article about how he died. Let me tell you about the good things about him. Let me, like, he's he's kind of looking out for this kid in this, like, very small mm-hmm. scene or whatever. And that, and yet, just the mere specter of Ryan Gosling and just finding out about him sends Dane DeHaan down this, like, spiral of... Uh, you know, doubt and and self-destruction, and all of a sudden he becomes the kind of guy who, you know, is going to pull a gun on somebody. And all of a sudden he's, you know, this, like, motorcycle-riding drifter. And I'm like, that to me, that to me is where I I lose this film a little bit because it it it's so abrupt and it's so... Um, I get the symbolism of it and I get the the thematic thing of it is just like oh right once he you know once he learns about his dad he gets sort of sucked into this vortex of fate that he is doomed to sort of repeat the the life of his father he literally like the movie ends with him being a traveling motorcycle drifter just like his dad was and like Mm -hmm. it is a little too and then it cuts to Bonnie Vare, of course. Okay. Over the credits. <laughs> Can I also say, I was never into Bonnie Vare, but like if you existed in the world in 2012, 2013, you heard a lot of Bonnie Vare because it, he was sort of just like he was in the culture. And listening to that song over the credits gave me such a rush of. I'm back in 2013 and look like any nostalgia at this point in my life after 14 months in quarantine is weaponized automatically. And so I was just like really overwhelmed with this like very intense, like I was once eight years younger than I am today. Like one of those (laughs) kind of things. And it was just, it was very intense. But yeah, I think um, I like Bonnie Bear. I should say because I just uh, kind of gave that a withering. Very I think that song, song. is ridiculous, but like, it is. I, but it's a very pretty song. I but love, like, yeah. But I don't know if you agree. Like, I do you agree with me that 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 turn at the end of the movie with Dane DeHaan's character feels? I don't know if it feels supported by what we're see what we've seen on on screen. I. It, it feels like the portion of the movie when I first saw the movie, it felt like the portion of the movie that I liked the most. And now it's the one that I like the least. Yeah. Um, 
it feels the most truncated. It feels like there, whenever there was some longer version yeah. of the movie, it is the one that, like, because you're right, it is very abrupt, and it it this is where a lot of the contrivances that people have people have a problem with with this movie come into play because it's the abruptness makes a lot of things seem awfully convenient. Um, right. The but, ways like, in which he finds out about uh, Emery Cohen, who Emery Cohen's dad mm-hmm. is and, and the, the, the dots get connected and the way in which like all of a sudden this father who he never knew is like the most important thing in his life that must be avenged. And it's like really like, and I get where like it would fuck him up, but I don't know if I buy that it would fuck him up this way, this quickly. Right. To hold a gun to Bradley Cooper's head. Right. Um, This kid who like seems like a generally good kid. He's not like this like honor student, like, you know, head of the class kind of kid, but like, and you know, He's, you know, he knows where to get Oxycontin. So, like, clearly he he's seen some shit. But, like, he's not a bad kid. He's actually contrasted with Emery Cohen, who seems, like, much more of a little shit. And Well, and that's where, like, I think the ideas of masculinity in this movie are maybe the most interesting or, like... Uh, again, it takes a pivot from, like, the cop stuff to, like, here's another different angle on masculinity. Like, Emery Cohen has abs and, like, has, like, the chain He's super hot in this movie. I don't, this. like, yeah. But, like, Dane DeHaan has conceivably never taken a shower in this movie. And, like, he's this lanky little scrawny kid, yeah. you know? So it's like they are very contrasted in a certain way. And the fact that Emery Cohen is the, like, really bad one is, you know, just kind of another angle on these tropes. Well, right. It, that one, That feels like very structured right where like now the Mm -hmm. cops kid is the bad influence on the criminals kid and like but i do feel like okay so here's where i'm going to make my case for both of actually the teen uh the teen characters in this movie is that is a structure right cops kid bad criminals kid good i think those two actors really sell it i think dane dehan's very good in this movie i think he's doing the best of what he does as an actor and we've seen him used you know sort of i think as his career went along he just got kept getting cast in these like ever more creepy roles he's sort of like um caleb landry jones uh, uh himself into like more and <laughs> more permutations caleb of, landry jones is tethered but he's the good tether he's the good tether right exactly um but i think he's giving you in this movie what the best of him is which is like troubled little scrawn who you know there's you know the good sort of kid there in him right and you mourn what's being lost by you know him getting you know the shit kicked out of him and him getting arrested for you know having oxy and then him you know what happens to him at the end of this movie but like he the individual scenes the scenes where he and emory cohen sort of interact and it's it really is just like it's a bad kid corrupting a good kid a little bit. And, and then the scenes with him and Mendelssohn are really good. That shot of him sort of shot from afar where after he gets arrested, 
uh Mahershala drops him off at school and sort of like gives him this little like you know side hug and and it's very sort of affectionate fatherhood moment and that scene is there so that Emery Cohen's character can see that and and see what he doesn't have with his own father and hate it mm-hmm. and um but I think this is where the Emery Cohen thing comes in I think he sells that character too I think I I knew kids like that who put on such a front of toughness and sort of this like you know like uh you know urban chain around the neck i'm gonna be like spouting rap lyrics like a fucking tool like he's not he's not meant to be the one we sympathize with and maybe we want to put that fault in it is that like he he makes this character too hateable but I think he really embodies the little moments where you see you see the facade, you see what a front he's putting on, you see how wounded he is and how much he resents uh, Dane DeHaan's character for at least having, you know, a father who loves him, uh, who sort of like outwardly loves him. And I think he's so effective at playing that type of a kid. Like when you see him at the end where he's like all like dressed up at, at his father's um acceptance speech for winning probably uh, wearing his father's suit right and he's like he's just like you can see it's like it's all a facade he just he's uh and it makes you kind of hate him all the more because of how he dragged down dane dehan into this sort of like hell of of whatever you know this new life for him is like i i don't know maybe some people see the end of this movie and are like now dane dehan is free to like follow his own path and i'm just like this poor fucking kid has just like Left a loving set of parents. Yeah, this kid is screwed for the life of of you know on the road and and a t- a destiny of his father's and, um, but I I do feel like and I think Emery Cohen in this movie sells it to me in a way that when remember when he was in Brooklyn and everybody was like oh remember that guy who we all hated in Place Beyond the Pines so we hot love in him Brooklyn. I don't like him in. So I think good, so I don't. Hot. I don't buy him in Brooklyn. That's the movie where I'm just like. Really? I think this is a put on. I think this is all. This feels like oh, a, see, I a think comedy. That, I sketch. think that's true about this performance. It see, feels very put on. It feels like someone doing a weird accent. It like. I completely disagree. I like I like it more than I initially did. I at, at first I was like I never want to see this actor again. <laughs> well, so that's the bad. other thing I'm is like that's not how I feel now. I can't remember whether Smash was still on TV at this point or not, but if it was off the air, it had just gone off the air. But I'm pretty sure it was still on. And like he was the most like of like several characters who everybody hated on that show. Everybody hated him. And I think a lot of that was for storyline reasons, but also it was just like he was the like sullen teen who always was sullen about everything and it's just like you fucking hate that guy in everything like in every kind of you know tv show where you have that that teen everybody hates that teen and so all of a sudden he shows up in this movie where he's got to do this like you know at least some dramatic heavy lifting and everybody was just like absolutely not we do not accept this we do not take this on yeah i don't know i i will say uh i think dane dehan is the best performance in the movie He's really good, right? A movie I know that has like almost uniformly really strong performances. Yeah, I think Gosling's great. I think Cooper's great. I think Mendelssohn is fantastic. Um, Eva Mendes is amazing, and she doesn't really have. She doesn't much get a lot to do. To do. Yeah, but no. like it makes you really want to see her do this type of uh, heavy lifting in a role that 
serves her. Right. Um, I so need Dan- to see that James Gray movie she's in because I wonder if it that really gives her the opportunity to. Right. Um, which James Gray movie is it? Uh, is it We Own the Night? Yes. We yeah. Own the Night. I'm Joaquin Phoenix. It does sound like a Pat Benatar song, doesn't it? We Own the Night. Um, <laughs> that is Patti Smith. Uh, Dane DeHaan earlier in 2012 was in that movie Chronicle that we don't talk about anymore and rightly so because it's directed by Josh Trank and written by Max Landis and like no one wants any part of that but I really loved him in that movie and I actually uh and Michael B. Jordan is also in that movie um who we love and I really liked that movie but I really especially loved uh Dane DeHaan in that movie and at that point the only other thing that I had seen him in was on uh in Treatment did HBO uh, show in treatment about the shrink that was on like five days a week mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and he was really good in that. And so I was really, really fond of him by the point where I see him in place beyond the pines and like not two years later, he shows up in amazing Spider-Man two as Harry Osborne. And like, again, being like, Hey kiddo, do you want to be like the creepiest creeper who ever creeped in this movie? And he's just like, got it on it. And <laughs> I really Han in like villain costume with those teeth is me this morning nursing this hangover. <laughs> that's how I feel. And I just feel like from then on, everybody was just like, oh, that's what this guy is. Like, I'll pass. Yeah. And like, Cure for Wellness. And everybody's like, no. And Tulip Fever, which like the two of us who saw and nobody else did. And he's kind of miscast in that. I, of course... Cure for wellness. He's like a hairless baby seal. He is. Um, investigating killer eels in a in a tank. Yeah. Cure for wellness is weird. It does and like, kind of rule, but then yes, it's it also does. fully bad. It's both of those things at once, which I kind of love. I actually think he's really good in Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. I know I'm like on a very uh, small island there. Um, but again, another movie where he is just a shirtless, hairless, uh, baby panda. And he has to play this like cocky space jock. And I'm like, you're selling me on this. And I love that about you. And I dig it. And, um, but yeah, he feels like he's somebody because like, like those three 2017 movies were cure for wellness, tulip fever, Valerian are all movies that are only known by like a very select group of like movie psychos, which like are all my people, (laughs) but like nobody in the greater world knows anything about those movies. And even though one of them involves like Rihanna being, I want to say maybe a hologram or an alien or both, but she's also doing like a burlesque routine. uh, Noted acre girls member, Cara Delevingne yes valerian's a wild movie you should go see it um by you i mean everybody um (laughs) so yeah so that's my whole i love dane dehan thing i do love him in this movie he's just he does a lot with just his face like it's just like he's perfectly cast i think because like it really is such a tragic face where it's just like oh you poor sweet little you know baby child who like (laughs) the world is really gonna like chew you up and spit you out and i feel bad i feel bad uh perfectly cast and like this is the thing that's still so wild to me like uh, watching the movie the first time and this time i was like no but really he's perfectly cast because he is absolutely conceivable as ryan gosling's son um yeah yeah 
which is like, you know, parents and children in movies is always like, okay, sure, yeah. we we will buy into this, but like, yeah. you could actually buy into that being real. Yeah, and it's even more impressive in that the fact that they don't obviously share any scenes together because of the, mm-hmm. the way that the, the movie is structured. Um, but yeah, I, again, I feel like the last third of the movie really like, uh, races towards this conclusion it wants to get to, and I think skips some steps along the way. And that feels a little dissatisfying, but in general, I respect the swing. I respect the, the ambition of it. And at two hours and 20 minutes, I never really felt I've read some reviews where they're like it's interminable it drags it's whatever and I'm just like I don't I didn't feel that then and I don't feel that now like I really feel like there's a there's the movement of the narrative all feels correct to me. I mean I feel like it's one of the problems with the third act of the movie is that it's following the Bradley Cooper portion which is probably the most lean of yeah. the story in terms of like just yeah. kind of shuttling along in that story and like maybe that portion could still be briefer but it does um I don't know I feel like the part that maybe drags or is not as interesting as the final third but like yeah. saying that this movie as a whole drags I don't and yeah. like the Ryan Gosling portion of the movie, which I feel like we've barely talked about. Um, well, because as longest. you said, it's though, like it's just vibes. Hour. It's such it's so vibesy. Like, um, I'm trying to sort of like go through my notes and see. Oh, the, we talked about how great Ben Mendelsohn is, but like we need to linger a little bit on the scene after their first robbery, where they're uh, they're dancing to Dancing in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Which is like, Springsteen is a perfect music choice for this film. I don't care that it's not in New Jersey. <laughs> it had to have been so fucking expensive to get a Springsteen. Probably true. Movie. But like, it's so, there's like, it's that's the one little moment of joy for Gosling's character. And it's so lovely to just watch them. Uh, and like, Mendelssohn is such a, you know, wiry little, you know, cigarette stub of a man. And I love him. Um it's he is a walking ashtray in this movie yes truly oh but so lovable starring ben mendelson as an ashtray yeah um the shot of ryan gosling's dead body after he gets shot out of the window and they really linger on it is like it's really gnarly it's really uh effective and i mean if you're pinning this movie on like the you know life trajectory changing uh things that happen from that one moment you really need that to linger and to sort of settle into the audience that'll do it because well and then that kind of like i don't want to say glamour shot but that like completely uh the like sideways shot where you see the cop running up to his dead body where it's like it does the literal thing of turning the movie on its head um yeah Yeah. it you're right that it does a really good job at selling that it's yeah. like life altering mythos. And that chase scene is incredibly well filmed too. The one where like, he's Jesus. like going through the cemetery on the motorbike and Cooper is, or no wait, it's the other cop at that point who's chasing him there. And then Cooper like meets him at the, the T intersection of those roads. And like it, there's a really great sense of place in this film, the sort of this, the schenectady of it all that feels mm-hmm. 
really uh, well-earned and well-established. And I loved that. To bring it around to, like, an Oscar conversation, yeah. it's just, like, maybe it's, to some listeners, it might be in the weeds to be, like, it is absurd that this is not a cinematography nominee. Yeah. But, like, guys, it took how long to get Sean Bobbitt nominated doing, like, it, it's shocking to me he wasn't nominated for uh, 12 Years a Slave. Um, well, that's the thing. It's, like, 12 Years a Slave had how many Oscar nominations, and it's a Best Picture winner, and all of that. And so, all right, let me look at the nominees that year. So, like... All I get, I get it with, for most of these. Um, all like, of his work with Steve McQueen is incredible too. Oh, it's, uh, what shame! He he did shame, yeah. right? Yes, I imagine. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did shame. He also did hunger, which like there's some yes. shit in hunger that is just like mind blowing. <laughs> it's. I think there's one um, cinematography nominee that really stands out, like a sore thumb in this movie, and like that's fine. But like this was finally the year that Emmanuel Lubetsky. Uh, uh, gets over the hump, wins his first of what would be three consecutive cinematography uh, wins for Gravity. For this, this is for Gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, the nomination for Philippe Lesord for the Grandmaster is a really cool nomination, and I'm glad that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruno Delbanel for Inside Lewin Davis. That's a really, really beautiful looking film, and that's a great nomination. I get the uh, Feeden Papa Michael. Uh, it's so weird that that's how you pronounce that name. At the Oscars, I was like, that's really, there's just no, like, little European trill on that at all. Okay. Um, gets nominated this year for Nebraska, which is, as I mentioned when I was on, uh, or no, wait, this was uh, this was at game night when we were all, ta- all talking about who's going to win cinematography. And everybody's like, I think it's Nomadland. It's so pretty. And I'm like, yeah, but Manx in black and white. And yeah, but black and white winners aren't really a thing so much as they are nominees. Well, because like the white ribbon didn't win. Yes, it did. Did it? I'm pretty sure it did. I am positive it did not win. What would it have lost to? Hold, please. Oh, it did. It lost to Avatar. Okay, fine. Yeah. Avatar. I thought the way that's what I was sort of like basing that. But anyway, they do. They really do. Like they value black and white and whatever. Sure. I was right. So I'm going to hang my head <laughs> You on were that. right. You were right. Uh, not to just like shit on someone, but like I, anytime a movie is shot by Faden Papa Michael, it is an eyesore to me. Um, I and think then, Nebraska uh, looks fine, but the, the Roger Deakins uh, nomination for Prisoners is the one where it's like, did we really need to nominate Prisoners? <laughs> I like Prisoners fine, but... I understand your logic, but go back and watch that movie again. There is some really interesting visual stuff going on in that I movie. mean, I believe that, it. It's like, a Deakins movie. It's all subtextual. But I feel like to, to sort of exclude Sean Bobbitt for the Best Picture nominee just seems interesting right 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 right. whereas at least nebraska is also a best picture nominee and just don't nominate nebraska (laughs) i hated that movie um yeah yeah but like that's the one that makes sense for me i think there were some critics towards the end of the year when they were trying to like reassess this movie were talking about gosling as a supporting actor yeah, um, that was never going to happen, like, though. FYC, I don't think it was going to happen either. But, like, we forget this is the weird time of, like, us being like, when is Ryan Gosling going to get that second nomination? And it, right. I think it doesn't seem weird now, 
But yeah. like if we had our future version, our future selves had gone back in time and said, you know, he's going to get nominated for a musical that really isn't any heavy lifting whatsoever. Yeah. We would have probably lost our minds. Yeah, it's true. That's definitely true. Um, ultimately, it's sort of its biggest moment in award season is it shows up on the National Board of Review top 10 independent films of the year. This was when NBR had realized that they could double their pleasure, double their fun by nominate, uh, by recognizing 10. At this point, this is when they were like, we'll do a top 10 and our number one of the year. So it's like 11 films as their top 10 and also a top 10 independent films plus, you know, foreign films and documentaries. So like the more the merrier. And again, this is why I love the national border review. Um, <laughs> I replace think... the Globes with the National Board of Review. Dick Clark Productions, get on it. I think that their top 10 independent films is a better list than their top 10 films of the year. Their top 10 films of the year has some really great ones, of course. 12 Years a Slave, Gravity, uh, Inside Lewin Davis. But like, Secret yet... Life of Walter Mitty is a wild choice. Um, Saving Lone Mr. Banks Survivor. is a wild choice. Ooh. Lone Survivor is a wild choice. Like, there's some real questionable stuff. Her is the one that wins Best Picture and also Best Director for Spike Jones, which wouldn't have been my pick, but I like that they did it. I like that. I like that there was a corner of award season that year that was like, yeah, we're going to give it to her. And her ultimately is a Best Picture nominee. So, like, kind of good for NBR for setting that ball rolling that mm-hmm. way. Um, but they're. Top 10 independent films list is, again, not bulletproof, but, like, Ain't Them Body Saints, which I don't love, but I do love David Lowry. Um, Dallas Buyers Club, which is the only one of these that gets a Best Picture nomination. Um, In a World, Lake Bell's In a World, which I really loved. Mm-hmm. Mother of George, the movie with Denai Gurira in it. Fantastic. Really, really fantastic movie. Glad that it made uh, a list like this. Um, <laughs> Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, which doesn't look great in retrospect, but I really liked at the time and um, thought it was at least like a fun, if you're going to do a another Shakespeare adaptation, like that was a fun angle, I thought, to do it, where it was just like, you know, modern day and friends, you know, sort of in a yard and black and white and all that sort of stuff. I liked that. Uh, Jeff Nichols's mud, which was a very big part of the reconnaissance that was happening right around that time. Uh, place beyond the pines, short term 12, my beloved short term 12. Um, the big Brie Larson breakthrough movie that uh, preceded her eventual Oscar win. Uh, ben Wheatley sightseers, which is like ornery and, and, you know, nasty as so many of his movies are. And The Spectacular Now, which, where have you gone, James Ponsel? Like, I would like him to make a movie again. Like, even when I don't... He's doing a show... Hold on, I'm going to look this up. I think he's doing a show? A series? That would make sense to me, but, like, I would like for him to make another movie. Because... fan of James Ponsel. I never saw The Circle. Nor did Um, I. It looked... It was supposed it, to be. Everyone bad. says that it's terrible, so yeah. something went wrong there. The the James Ponsolt movie that like I want to see another James Ponsolt movie um, that is going to give me a lot of faith for him in a while is Smashed. Which I love is, Smashed. I think Smashed is fantastic. Just and got I think buried. Yeah, 
I mean, it was it was very small, and he wasn't a thing yet. And like the spectacular now is probably the closest he came to like legitimate awards buzz. We could probably do that movie at some point, which mm-hmm. if we want to talk about Miles Teller, oh right, the um, which we don't. Yeah, um, the TV show I was thinking of is the Facebook show. Sorry for your loss with uh, Elizabeth Olsen. Yes, which people really liked. I never watched, but I remember people being like, "It was it's very good." The people, the few people who saw it, um, yeah, bring back James Ponsold. Anyway, what are your thoughts on this NBR top ten independent films that year? It's good. It could probably be better, but I mean, you are right that it is definitely better than their uh, overall top ten. Yeah, yeah. There's some good stuff in there, and that was sort of it for Place Beyond the Pines. Like, you would think, like, a movie that has this much sort of heft to its craft that it would have showed up in, like, somewhere, something for, like we said, cinematography or production design or editing or something. Yeah, I mean, I think partly it's just that it's, the movie was positioned poorly. Um, And, like, I... Again, I don't think a TIFF world premiere is what's right for this movie. Certainly not in an awards narrative because, like, could Focus have rushed this movie out or done, like, a qualifying release? Sure, but that's very hard to do. It does seem like the type of movie that would probably benefit from people seeing Last Minute, you know? And the type of, uh, like, narrative you could have built around this movie. But, like... And yet, I feel like the... The reception that this movie got, I think it needed, you know, a while for people, for certain people to come around on it. Or maybe I'm just being so self-focused there because that was my journey with it. But um, I don't see this movie doing, you know, super well at the end of the year also. And, And again, this particular year, Cooper was already getting awards buzz for American Hustle there's always such an odd nomination to me in retrospect. I don't like that movie very much, except I do like certain elements of it. I don't think he's bad in it, but I also like, don't, I don't know. I don't think back fondly on like the Bradley Cooper of that movie. Um, And it also feels like he's a borderline lead in that movie. And it's weird that it's a supporting nomination. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, it's, it's, this movie's kind of a weird one because it's also like if we're talking about the Oscar buzz this movie had, a lot of it was probably even before the movie premiered. Like I remember when those images were released of Gosling on the motorcycle right, with right. all of his tattoos, his face tattoos. Yeah. Um, and like uh, the the Gosling ethos, but I just like it's also that like this movie made for what this movie is, it yeah. made kind of a lot of money. Like you know, it's it doesn't feel like this movie got shafted. No. Necessarily. And it ex- it's, you know, we talk about movies that, like, don't exist. Like, this movie definitely existed. And, like, a lot of people, you know, talked about it. And this movie was on Netflix for, like, a year. Yeah. So, like, people have seen this. Yeah. And maybe, you know, we can, you know, encourage people. If you did not, if you didn't see it at the time because you thought it would be something that you wouldn't be into for a lot of the reasons we've talked about in this episode, maybe give it a shot. It's, you know, there's a good chance that it's better than you, that you thought it would be. And it's unpacking all of those things that like people have lobbed against it. 
And yeah. like, yeah, I agree. I like I this movie a lot. I do too. I really do too. And again, I want D- Derek C. in France to make another uh, big screen movie. He was going to b- make Sound of Metal. That was going to be his movie for the longest mm-hmm. time. And it didn't happen. It ends up going to Darius Martyr. And like, of he all. passed it off to him, yeah. And it ends up being Derek C. in France's first ever Oscar nomination as one of the screenwriters for Sound of Metal. I was going to bring this up because it's like, it's almost kind of like we've talked about Nicole Hollis Center's first Oscar nomination in this way a little bit. That it's yeah. like. You just want something that feels fully theirs to be their Oscar nomination. Though during the telecast, when it was the like whatever that you know boardroom meeting of a ceremony was, when uh, when they did the screenplay category, I was like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV uh, meme. I was like Derek C in France. (laughs) (laughs) There he is. Like I I recognize that guy across the room. What was his little factoid that they said about him? Do you remember? I totally. Don't I don't I and I did they do that for screenplay? I don't remember. I don't remember. It's going to be the weirdest Oscar ceremony to rewatch. <laughs> it's going to be so weird. I swear to God, it's going to be like I I I kept calling it a wedding where no one was dancing, um, <laughs> but it does feel like you know a, a city council meeting in a lot of ways to me. Oh wow! Um, but yeah. I like Seeing France. I like his work. We didn't say anything about The Light Between Oceans. Is that the title of that movie? Yeah, The Light Between Oceans. But we're going to definitely do that movie. Yeah, we'll definitely do that movie. That was definitely a movie that had a lot of long lead Oscar buzz that was pretty well misplaced. I feel like I was, you know, as much as anybody being like, keep an eye out for this movie. And now I look at it and just be like, I mean, DreamWorks punted on that movie, too. They kind of just, like, dumped it after, like, dragging their feet on when it would come out. Because, like, that movie was filmed a long time before it was released. Yeah. Um, I guess to kind of put the button on it, it still is strange to me that, like, Focus couldn't pull something out for this movie, given what their Oscar lineup was. Yeah, we've basically true. done episodes on the whole focus lineup from 2013. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, Was it 2013 or 12? 2012, 2012, 2013. They actually, it's basically Dallas Buyers Club and nothing else. Like the World's End happens. Right. That's my you know least favorite of those Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Edgar Wright movies, but. Uh, some people really liked it. Otherwise, what was Closed Circuit again? Oh, the Stephen Knight movie. Yeah, the weird spy movie that... Yes. Like, right. Every, you're always out. being uh, recorded. Stephen Knight wrote it. John Crowley uh, directed it. Interesting. Um, John Crowley, director of uh, the Emory Cohen vehicle, Brooklyn. Um, yeah. Yeah, 2013. Getting the Best Picture nomination for Dallas Buyers Club is like... We'll talk about that, I guess, in the next uh, episode when we do uh, focus features up until the present day. But um, good job getting that Best Picture nomination because they really worked for that. And we can say what we want about that movie, but like that was a well-campaigned film by them, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Place Beyond the Pines. I liked it. I still like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. I like it. I hear everyone's complaints about the movie. I get it. I still like the movie. Yeah, same. Same here. All right. Do we want to do IMDb? 
game. Yeah, let's move on to the IMDb game. Joe, tell our listeners new and old what the IMDb game is. Sure, yeah. Every week when we're done riding a motorcycle around a steel death cage, we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Fantastic. Would you like to uh, give or guess first? I'll give first. All right, what do you have for me? So we brushed upon this a uh, little bit earlier when we were talking about Derek C. in France and his uh, wonderful uh, Says You and I Believe You uh, HBO miniseries, I Know This Much Is True. Um, great performance, acclaimed performance by Rosie O'Donnell. And I don't think we've done Rosie O'Donnell. And if we did, I don't remember it. So Holy smokes. Why don't Rosie. you do Rosie? Oh, uh, League of one, Their Own? Sorry, no television, one voice performance. Oh, that's going to be hard. Yes, A League um, of Their Own. Yes, a League of Their Own. Yes. Um, the Flintstones. Yes. Exit to Eden. No. <laughs> I love Damn. that you guessed that, though. Of course Strike I guessed Strike one that. on Exit to Eden. Um, the widely reviled uh, Exit to Eden. <laughs> by her. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Yes. Great. Great underrated performance uh, of Rosie O'Donnell's in Sleepless in Seattle. Everyone's wonderful. The ideal best friend in a romantic comedy performance. I think somebody else, I may be like stealing that observation from somebody else uh, that I heard in another podcast and apologies if uh, it was. Maybe it was Katie Rich when she did the blank check episode on Sleepless in Seattle, but it's true. It's like it's it's the absolute. It's what you shoot for when you have the best friend in a romantic comedy. It's what Rosie mm-hmm. O'Donnell's doing in that movie. All right, so now you are down okay, with so one strike to the voice performance. The voice performance. I'm trying to remember. It's not some like ironic, you know, animated movie for adults. It is definitely a kids movie. I'm trying to remember. Maybe it's that I don't like this movie because like I'm running through the animated movies that I do like. <laughs> it's not Pixar because it would have been like kind of before Pixar took over and I can't remember her in a Pixar movie. Is no, it's not Hercules. Hercules is like all dudes too. So, um, no, it's not. Hercules has all those like the Greek chorus is all those fabulous uh, female singers. Yeah, but like that, they're amazing. Have you seen Hercules yet? Nope. We're still fighting about this. <laughs> nope, I haven't. You can't tell me what's in Hercules. Oh, it's the Go only thing I movie. know about Hercules is that everybody always talks about the the singers yeah, but the in Greek that movie. Chorus just shows up for like three songs. Fine. It, it's like it's not like you know it's obviously Lilius White which fuck yeah she rolls I am um, to paraphrase Ernie Sabella in In and Out too old for Hercules I missed it by a window and I can never go back you are just being petulant about Hercules a movie that will take up like 75 minutes of your day and make you very happy I could easily watch it all I'm saying is if I don't have the foundation of having seen it as a child I'm not going to appreciate it the same way as an adult I I'm disagree I think okay. you're going to have a good ass time alright anyway um okay okay so it has to be it's 90s 
animated. I hope it's not something like that fucking animated Sinbad movie that has Brad Pitt. <sighs> Wait, no, I know what it is. I don't like this movie. It's Tarzan. It is Tarzan. It's the only, as far as I'm going through her, uh, besides like television, like uh, uh, American Dad, I think it's the only animated movie that she lent her voice to. So, yeah, it's Tarzan. Best original song winner, of course, we remember. Tarzan. She plays... You will be in my heart. Uh, Turk. Would I assume uh, is, a, is a gorilla or something. Um, but yes. It's Turk from Scrubs. <laughs> She's playing, iconically, Turk from Scrubs uh, in that film. <laughs> Wait, Glenn Close? I imagine Glenn Close is his mom? Yeah. His, like, gorilla mom? Yeah. Wow. Why didn't she win Tarzan's the Oscar for that, that I ask? I ask you. Anyway, All right, good job. so for you... Thank you. Um, uh, for you, I also went back into the Sea in France uh, projects, uh, films, motion pictures. Uh, I went a little more basic, though. And for you, I have another Gosling co-star, Michelle Williams. Oh. Don't think we've done her before. All right, Michelle Williams. Well, there's a lot of competition here. No television. No television, no Fosse Verdon. Um, all right, okay. Let's see. Well, I am with four Oscar nominations, we're going to at least get some of them in there. My Week with Marilyn. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I actually think she's kind of good in that not good movie. Not like give her an Oscar for it. Yeah, I was going to say, not like Oscar nomination good. Um, okay. Manchester by the Sea. Manchester by the Sea. Brokeback Mountain. No. Okay. I knew I shouldn't have guessed that. I'm not going to guess Blue Valentine, even though you're probably cackling in your head if it is Blue Valentine. Um, no, you said no television, so obviously no Dawson's Creek. No television. Um, what's like... Oh, I would. All right, Venom. No, okay. no Venom. All right, how cr- that is? You are a jerk for guessing Venom. It's a for it's Michelle a mainstream Williams. movie. I get it, but she's that that's shady. She's not good in that movie. It's a mainstream production. I get it. I need to rewatch Venom and try to give it a chance because I want I want to have as much fun with that movie as everybody else does and it made me so mad. Yeah. When I, saw it. I liked it. I thought it was dumb and fun. You were I remember you like egging me on to see the movie and then like when I left I probably just texted you like fuck you. <laughs> you I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. <laughs> that sounds exactly right. I was like I hate you. Um okay. Uh your two uh titles left for Michelle Williams your years are 2010 and 2011. Of course. All right. 2010's Blue Valentine. It is indeed Blue Valentine. All right, what would be her 2011? It was the same year as my week. I will Maryland. say, just to kind of guide you on, 2011 is probably a weird year because I don't think this was released stateside in 2011. All right. 
Um, it's crazy that three of her four Oscar nominations show up on her known for, but not Brokeback Mountain. The injustice continues. Um, I think that's probably a billing because she would have been billed even below like Anne Hathaway. No. I, well, maybe, but like fourth at the at worst. At the time, yeah. Like, I at guess. the time, she was still that Dawson's Creek actress. Yeah. But like fourth at the at the lowest, I feel like. I don't know. We'll look that up later. All right. 2011 movie into 2012 for Michelle Williams, which means it played a festival. So it's a festival-y kind of a movie. Um, wasn't that movie that got delayed a billion years by Harvey Weinstein? Um, Sweet Francais. Sweet Francais. That debuted on Lifetime. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Oh, what am I missing in my brain? Is this one of those like we both what the fuck love is this, doing? this movie? Really? Okay. I'm is pretty sh- sure you love this movie. I fucking love this movie. Oh wait, no, not Synecdoche. Um, we love this filmmaker. We love this filmmaker. Um. It's I not... will just guide you along and say it debuted at TIFF, and uh, it makes sense why. It's too early for uh, Kelly Reichert. Wait, okay, it makes sense why. So it's a French-Canadian filmmaker or just a Canadian filmmaker? Perhaps. Is... Okay. All right. Okay. Um, Who are the Canadian filmmakers we love? Um, Wouldn't be... A Jason Reitman movie. I don't think it's a... Maybe you don't love this movie because I feel like I've led you on a different path. Maybe I don't. I I think we've talked about this and you do love this movie too. All right, well... Kind of a starry cast. Her, the... um, there was a supporting actress player who was uh, a lot of people have mentioned for this movie because we've not really seen them in that mode before. Okay, that's interesting. It's like not those. like a romantic comedy, but it is kind of a, you know, it's a drama oh, with like oh. comedic undertones. It's, um, I do love this movie, and I do love her in this movie, and I do love this filmmaker. You are right about all of those things. It's Take This Waltz, I imagine, Yes. It's Take This Waltz. Sarah Polly's Take This Waltz. I love that that's in her known for. That's rad. She's so great in that yeah, movie. She's amazing in it. That scene of her on the whatever, not the Tilt-A-Whirl, but whatever the little amusement park ride. The Scrambler. Oh my god. It's such a great scene. Holy shit. Ah, she's so great in that movie. Yes. Amazing. I love Can't it. wait for Sarah Polly's next movie. Yeah, I'm what is that? Right when is because... that? Um, we're overdue she had this really nice thing after olympia dukakis died she had this really lovely sort of tweet about uh um having worked with olympia dukakis on away from her and she said that olympia wait what was the thing that olympia had said to her um she's like you're 25 you should be having the best sex of your life and if you're not you better start or something like that. And I was like, it was just wonderful. And it's that there were a lot of really, you got the sense that people really uh, did love um, Olympia Dukakis because there were so many like really, really lovely testimonials about her. And that was maybe my favorite. Mm. 
I didn't see that one, but I do love that. Uh, Sarah Polly, they, this movie's announced. Who knows if this is still happening? But, uh, partnering with Francis McDormand for a film called Women Talking. It's a novel adaptation. The movie sounds, um, very, fairly intense. Wait, um, would you like to pitch something exactly to my demographic? Make a movie called <laughs> Women Talking. Okay. Yes. I've <laughs> already. Francis McDormand directed by Sarah Polly. I've already purchased my ticket. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I am the people before Phantom Menace that would literally take tents to movie theaters and sit outside for weeks um, for a movie called Women Talking. A movie called Women Talking about women talking, starring women talking. Yes. I'm into it. Yeah. All right. All right, um, guys, that is our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where to find more of you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. You can find me on Letterboxd, uh, Joe Reed spelled the same way. Uh, and I am on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, including Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please uh, have your bank heist out in the open uh, with your five-star reviews. Don't hide away in a... um u-haul truck <laughs> perfect <laughs> we didn't really talk about the bank heist but it, you know that, it's really like well filmed a, we talked about it a little bit that. yeah i love um that. that's all for this week we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz and the conclusion of our focus features miniseries oh,